Now, here's my question for you. Are there spiritual vital signs? Are there some spiritual vital signs that will help us to figure out what's really going on in our lives? Because if there's a spiritual irregular heartbeat, just saying, or, or we're kind of out of whack because we've got this spiritual high blood pressure, or, 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 or we're not, let's say, breathing right in the spirit, the pneumos, the spirit of God, if we're not, then we're in trouble, are we not? So what we're looking at is the letter of 1 John, and we're going to be looking at, over the next several months, the spiritual vital signs that John identifies that would, that would identify whether we are alive in Christ or, and we are healthy in relationship with Him. But let's be clear from the beginning. Where do we all start out? Okay, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Read it with me on the screen. You and you were dead in trespasses and sins. Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our, transgress in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So before Christ, we're dead. We're dead to God. We're dead spiritually. He goes on in verse 8 and 9 to say, For by grace, and that word in the Greek is charis, for by grace, for by charis, you, are, you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of the result of works, so that no man may boast. So we start out dead. And if God walks away, then what? We're toast. If he doesn't do something, if he doesn't take action, we're done. The Bible said that he did just that. Romans 5 verse 8, at just the right time, he sent his son on a rescue mission. He sent his son to literally die in our place so that we could, we could experience resurrection with him, that he could make us alive with him. So the God who created us, not just as physical beings, but in his own image as spiritual beings, had to come to our rescue because we were pronounced DOA. But when he, he, went, when he went to work, things began to change for us. He massaged our heart. He applied pressure through the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. He, he warmed us. He wooed us to himself. And then he breathed his very life into us. He breathed his spirit into us. Spiritual CPR. And we came to life in him. So let's read Scripture. To start out in 1 John, the first letter of John, we're going to read the first four verses, the prologue of this letter. 
that which from, was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Okay, so who's writing? John. John the Apostle. He was one of the inner circle of apostles. Was he not? An eyewitness to everything that happened in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Now his name does not appear in the usual place at the beginning of this letter, does it? which was customary for New Testament letters for, you know, we, we sign our letters at the end. In the New Testament, the letters were signed at the front end. He simply calls himself the elder in his letters to the church. But his letter demonstrates a very personal and intimate knowledge of his readers. He references them throughout his letter as his dear children, which would indicate depth of relationship. And there's been much scholarly work that's been done to substantiate that it is the Apostle John who speaks here. It is the eyewitness of the resurrection who was the author of this letter and two others that follow. And there are many who have spent a great deal of time, pages upon pages, if you want to read it in commentaries, to substantiate who the writer is and all evidence internal in the letter, as well as historical, point to only one person, the Apostle of Love, John himself. And it was written around 90 A.D. While John was in exile on the Isle of Patmos, out in the middle of the Mediterranean, um, the Mediterranean Sea, he wrote this letter to his friends, his much-beloved church, in Ephesus and other churches that surrounded there. Now, you may remember that in the book of Acts is the Apostle Paul about three decades earlier who established these churches in Ephesus and around and spent literally a great deal of time there, over two years at one time, tent-making and, and planting churches around Ephesus. But the Apostle John, we come to understand, though he was born in Galilee and he grew up Jewish, he lived the last 15 to 20 years of his life in Ephesus and around Ephesus. For a short while, he was, uh, he, was on, uh, uh, he was sentenced to be on the Isle of Patmos, but he, we understand from early church tradition that he died while in Ephesus some years later. And what's the occasion? 
Why did he write the letter? Good question. Here's the key verse. It's on the screen. Chapter 5, verse 13. He summarizes his purpose here. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life, that all the vital signs are there for you, that you may know. Now, we've got five chapters in 1 John, and 36 times he uses the word know or some form. Know, knowing, make known, some form of the word know. And the Greek word is gnosis. We're going to see later when we begin to unpack the heresy that was, you know, that was brewing around Ephesus and in that region. It was due to a, a, a cult called Gnosticism, which means sort of know-it-all in effect. So the word know, he wants us to know, and without a shadow of a doubt, he wants us to know that we know. He uses it 36 times. Now, four times he uses the word confidence, or that we are confident that our faith is confirmed. There's certainty to our faith. The word literally means this idea of boldness. It's the same word in Hebrews uh, that the writer of Hebrews uses when he talks about we enter boldly to the throne of grace. We enter into the holy of holies where the throne of God is. And we, because of Christ, we do it boldly with confidence. So do you, you get the feel? This, the purpose of John here is, is to confirm our faith, to assure our faith so that we can know that we know Christ. Now, there are three other statements in the letter that also give reason for his writing that I think come underneath this overall summacious purpose here at the end of the letter. In verse 4 of chapter 1, he says this, We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete, so that we may have fullness of joy. In chapter 2, in verse 1, he says, My little children... I am writing these things so that you may not sin. You may not fall into and continue in sin. And then in chapter 2 and verse 26, another reason, he says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. He's going to have to confront false teaching, particularly the teaching of the Gnostics in this letter. So here's the idea. John writes his gospel, why? As a document of conversion. Seek to help those who need to initiate faith in Christ, come to belief in Christ. It's a, do- it's a document about conversion. The letters of John are about confirmation. The three letters of John in the New Testament are about confirming faith and assurance of faith. And the last thing that he wrote was what? The revelation, which is about the coronation of the Son of God at His second coming. The gospel for conversion, the letters for confirmation, and the revelation for coronation. Okay, so as we look at this text, there are three things that I would want to quickly point out to you. And they all are concerning the word of life. The word life appears three times in these four verses because that's who he's introducing. He's introducing the very life of God that is found in 
Christ. Concerning the word of life, he says, first of all, that that life is revealed. The life, this life, is revealed. Look at verses 1 and 2. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. He's saying Jesus was the Son of God in the flesh. He was real. We saw him. We listened to him. We touched him. In every way, we interacted with him as the Son of God in the flesh. The life was made manifest, and we've seen it. He was made manifest. He, life was revealed to us. Okay. Now, let me just say that when you look at this, this whole concept of revelation, of how God reveals himself, there are some general ways that he reveals himself as in creation. We can look at creation, can we not? And we can be awed by the power and the majesty of the one, the, a master designer. And there are more and more even scientists embracing this idea that there must have been someone who planned and orchestrated and created this. So there's a kind of a general revelation that we have. There is, a, there is another type of revelation that's called natural revelation, in which we come to understand things by reasoning things out. And we can use our reason to, you know, to, to, uh, to begin to formulate some concept of who God is, and there's something internal within us. There is a God void that causes us to want to think that through, but you've got to remember that we are dead spiritually, and so the mind is not you know, totally effective in that regard. So the only way that we really get revelation is if God specifically and specially reveals himself to us. Does that make sense? And the scripture says that Jesus is the, you know, is the supreme form of that. You know, Hebrews chapter one, the writer of Hebrews says in many and various ways in old times, God spoke through the prophets in a variety of, in a variety of ways, but now he has spoken to us. He has spoken his word clearly in his son. So the scripture sees the, the manifestation or the, the person of Jesus as the supreme special revelation of God he has, as, as he's revealed himself. And revelation has three parts. Now, I hate to give you a theology lesson here, but I'm going to have to. Revelation has three parts. The first part of revelation is manifestation. Literally means that God has to break into history. He has to do something to get our attention. He does something to reveal who he is or what he's doing in some kind of special way. Voila, Moses tending sheep, looks up on the mountain, sees maybe lightning struck a bush up there. But he watches it all day long and it just continually burns. And it never stops burning. This one bush. Hmm. I think I gotta go investigate. Are you getting the idea? God gets Moses' attention, he goes up on the mountain. What happens? Moses, take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. The bush speaks. Now that would get my attention. You get the feel for special revelation? God enters in, he breaks into history, he does something that gets our attention, all right? And this is exactly what John is saying to us that we, you know, the truth, the word of life. Life itself was manifested, and we touched it. We, we heard it. We spoke to it. We, we did life with it. We ate our meals together. We, it was manifested. This is the first part of, of, of God's special revelation. Is he manifests himself. He breaks into history. 
Now, the second part is inspiration. Inspiration. And that is that God gives men in history, in time and space, the ability to understand his special manifestation, what he has just done to break into history. God gives the ability to comprehend, to understand, and then to transmit that. And this, if you look in this text, in the first four verses, you say, John gives us five words that are words about inspiration. Three times he says, we proclaim this to you. And the first inspiration, it was 20 years before they started writing down Scripture, guys. The first inspiration was the, the, the apostles and the eyewitnesses of the church going everywhere, proclaiming and telling the story of the manifestation. They inspired by the event, the real and actual event of seeing, touching, and being a part of the clear breaking of God into history. Then they were inspired and they began to proclaim it. And the word proclaim, all three times, is from the root euangelion, the word angel, messenger, euangelion, to proclaim good news. They, they announce it. They, they boldly speak and announce the good news. We are proclaiming it. And it's always in John in present tense. We proclaim it and we ain't stopping for nothing. You get it? So three times he uses that. Then he says the word, he uses the word testify. This is what we testify to you. Now the word testify comes from the root martyrion. We get the word martyr from it. That's, I always think it's interesting that those eyewitnesses that faithfully testified to Jesus were martyred, weren't they? The word means there is a kind of a dying that has to take place if you're, gonna, if you're really going to testify to Jesus' life. <laughs> There has to be a dying to self in, in, in some way. Martyrion. They, this is what we testify. And again, the word testify, present tense. We testify and we're going to keep on testifying. You can't stop us. Is the idea. And then there's one other word. In, in verse 4 he says, we write this to you. We are writing this. And it's again in present tense. We write this. We'll keep on writing this. But that is, you know, that is under the inspiration of God. They have seen the manifestation of, of who Jesus is in, the, in his life, his ministry, his death on the cross, and his resurrection, his bodily resurrection. And we are testifying. We are in, inspired by that, understanding what that means. We are telling you. And here's the deal. Here's the third part. The third part of special revelation is what the theologians call illumination. Illumination. And what that simply means is that God gives people in every age, the ability to comprehend and to receive the record of his special manifestation. You follow me? You see, so here's Jesus in the upper room. Follow me here. And he's appeared to them once, but there was somebody missing. Thomas. And Thomas says, I ain't going to believe it. <laughs> Not unless I put my fingers in the holes in his hand and I put my, and my hand thrust into his side. I'm not believing it. I love uh, Carvecchio's painting of this. It hangs in the Uffizi Museum in, in Florence, one of my favorite art galleries. And um, Carvecchio paints the picture of Thomas and Jesus literally grabs Thomas by the hand and he's pulling Thomas's hand in, and you can see he's, that Thomas is really having to be stretched here. 
is he doesn't want to put his hand in Jesus' side. He's touched his palms. And, 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 so, and so when Thomas sees Jesus, what does he do? He falls on his face before Jesus and he says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus makes a statement right after that. Thomas, do you believe because you have seen? Blessed, blessed are they who have not seen and yet they will believe. This manifestation, this breaking into history by the Son of God who came in point in time and space, real, in the flesh, lived and died and rose again, inspiring those eyewitnesses who wrote it down. There, there will be, there will be a, a point at which he begins, the Spirit of God illumines the heart of those who hear the message and it becomes experiential to them. Do you follow? So here's the first thing in, that John talks about. The truth, the life is revealed. And secondly, the life is experienced. The life is experienced. It is experiential. It's not head knowledge. It's not just knowledge of, you know, I've got some facts about history. We have a living Savior who comes to us, reveals himself to us, you know, and, and as we listen to the proclamation in the Word of God, he becomes real in our lives, and we, and we enter into an experiential knowledge of him as he illumines our heart by the Holy Spirit. And so in 1 John... John uses this language of being born again. He used it first in his letter, in, I mean his gospel, in chapter 3 with Nicodemus. Remember, he says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. But he uses it six times in 1 John to indicate that those who have come to faith and have received the message and have put their faith, their trust, who have believed in Jesus as their Messiah are born of God. It's a very strong image, is it not? Given for most of us, there probably is a gestation period. Right? Think about how, you know, think about physical life. Jesus uses that analogy. Okay, so some of the vital signs start showing up when you're in the womb, right? Before you're ever even born, right? You go for your first sonogram. What are you doing, Mom? You're listening for a heartbeat. Is there a heart rate? Is there a sign of life in there? But the, that little baby in the womb is not breathing anything yet, right? And the temperature of that baby is just, the, is just whatever the room temperature of the mom is, right? Right? You follow? And then there comes a time when that, you know, through... And it's not pleasant, is it, women? We men don't know anything about that. It's not pleasant. You have to shove that baby out. And it hurts. And there's pain involved in that. Now, keep that in mind. When you were born again, there's probably pain involved. There was for me. But you see, when we're birthed, you were saying, and then, and that's when respiration starts. The, you know, the, the, the Spirit of God, the very breath of God, the pneuma, it's, that's the word for spirit. This, the breath of God flows into us. And, 
you know, we have the heartbeat and we've got the spiritual blood pressure and we've got the, and, and, we're, and we're warmed up. Now, keep in mind now that God likes the temperature to be a little hot. Revelation 3, uh, I would prefer that you be hot, not cold. Certainly, if you're lukewarm, you make me sick. You know what I'm saying? But he, he warms us. He, you know what I'm saying? He, there, there, is a, there is an experience that's called being born again. Now, does that sound like just an intellectual exercise to you? No, no. I, I, I could tell you about my gestation period. <laughs> and I could tell you about how that happened in my life and, and the pain that had to be associated with it because it took that, you know, whatever for me, to literally for the, the Lord to really get, capture my attention so that I could understand the manifestation uh, that, that was in the person and, and work and the death and the resurrection of Christ, that I could hear the, inspo- the inspired story as that was communicated faithfully through eyewitnesses in the New Testament. And the Spirit of God illumined my heart, began to illumine my heart, and began to draw me and began to woo me until I entered experientially into faith. So it's, it's revealed. The truth is revealed. The life is revealed. The life is experienced. And, and then there's one other thing that John says that's interesting. He says the life is shared. It's shared. It's kind of like saying there are no Lone Ranger Christians. You've heard that before. But some of us don't believe it. Some of us sort of prefer a kind of a spiritual isolation. You know, it keeps kind of the pressure off. But look at, look at what John says here. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. The word koinonia. It appears the very first time in the book of Acts, chapter 2, right after 3,000 souls come to faith in Christ. And for the first time in Scripture, the, the word coined in the end, they continued together in the apostles' teaching in the breaking of bread and in fellowship and in koinonia, in community and in prayer. We're not going to unpack all that today because this letter is going to do a great job of talking about what it means to live in community, right, Chad? I don't know which one of us is going to get to talk about that, but but um, we're going to try to nail that down. Because basically what he's saying is, hey, this life is not only revealed, been manifested, and by in- inspiration been transmitted, you know, and the story has been told, and it's been, it, it, the illumination has come, it's been experienced, but it's also a shared life. I love in uh, Jerome's little commentary on Galatians, and Jerome was a writer who wrote in the 4th century. Jerome tells this story, this very famous story about the blessed John the Evangelist. He says, Jerome says, in his extreme old age, he was living in Ephesus in extremely poor health and weak, But he insisted on being in church and in community every Lord's Day. They literally had to carry him 
in the arms of some of the disciples into the congregation. And at the end, Jerome says, he was barely able to speak. He could speak only a few whispered words, but he repeated the same words over and over again. He would say, Jerome says, little children love one another. Little children love one another. And some of the disciples were wearied that John always said the same thing. And so they asked, Master, why must you always say this? And Jerome writes John's response, because it is the Lord's command and if only this is done, it will be enough. It's a life to be shared. So if you receive the message, if you understand what has been revealed and you experience it and, and you begin to share in koinonia, what's the result? Joy. It results in joy. That's the first vital sign in the letter. Joy. Okay. How are we doing on time? Okay. Give me just a few more minutes. I want to say two or three things about joy. I love quotes. Uh, I, 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 I collect quotes. Here's some of my favorites on joy. Tim Hansel says, joy is just peace dancing. I like that. Joy is just peace dancing. Karl Barth, one of my favorite theologians, said, joy is the simplest form of gratitude. You'll, you begin to discover that joy is linked to a lot of other things. Chesterton, G.K. Chesterton. Joy is the gigantic secret of the Christian. The gigantic secret of the Christian. Joseph Marmion said, joy is the echo of the echo of God's life in us. Sam Shoemaker said, joy is the surest mark of a Christian. Not faith, not even love, but joy. That was Shoemaker. Teilhard de Chardin said, the surest sign of the presence of God is joy. You get it? Leslie Weatherhead the opposite of joy is not sorrow. The opposite of joy is not sorrow. It's unbelief. Think about it. Mother Teresa, I love this one. Mother Teresa said, one who is filled with joy preaches without having to preach. Some of you are wishing that would shut me up. Just fill him with joy, Lord. All right. Just four quick observations about joy. You need to come to a good, solid definition of what joy is. You need to really... That's, that's your assignment for this week. I mean, get out the concordance. You, use your smartphone and, you know, we're on the, and, and you can do the search on the Bible app, the... You know the and and just do the word joy and just just start working on your your a, a real 
definition of joy, what that means to you. But I would want to suggest to you a couple of things right off the bat. Number one, joy is not happiness. Happiness is all about circumstance, happenstance. Joy is much deeper than that. Joy is something that is subservice, that goes in a, that is found in the depths. You see, the surface may be stormy. See, the, and it, you may be unhappy about the events that are going on the surface of your life, the circumstances of your life. But when you have joy, you have something that's so deep that it's abiding that is not disturbed even when circumstances are out of whack. It's not happiness. It's a much deeper word. You know what the second shortest verse of the Bible is? 1 Thessalonians 5.16 Rejoice evermore or rejoice always. What's the first, what's the shortest? We all know that one, right? Because that's the one we memorized when we were in Sunday school. Because that was the easy one, right? But do we know where that's found? Okay, see, got you there. Jesus wept, rejoice evermore. Isn't that interesting that the shortest verse and the second shortest just sort of sit side by side here? You understand what I'm saying? Is that, is, is that you can have, circumstances can be terrible. You can be suffering. You can be hurting. You can be weeping and still experiencing joy. Joy. Because it's, it's not about happiness, is it? Clyde Reed, theologian, said this, One of the most common obstacles to celebrating life fully is our avoidance of pain. We dread pain. We fear pain. We do anything to escape pain. And our culture reinforces our avoidance of pain by reassuring us that, that, that we somehow can live a painless life. But to live without pain is to live half alive. Pain and joy run together. When we cut ourselves off from pain, we have unwittingly cut ourselves off from joy as well. So, I don't know where you start, but don't put that in your definition. It's not happiness. Joy is much deeper and much more abiding than that. Second thing, it's a byproduct. It's not a re- it, is, it is the result of. It's the result of a deep faith in Christ. It's a result of a, a true, an honest relationship with Him and the, His presence in our lives. It's a byproduct. Those who seek happiness or those who seek joy will be disappointed. It will elude them all of their lives. They may spend everything they have to try to find it. You can't go find it. Because it's a byproduct of a life that's written, that's lived in relationship with God in obedience to Him. Probably the best analogy is the word blessed in Scripture. When Jesus says, we do a terrible thing. Oh, forgive me here, because I have a King James Bible at home too. But when in the Beatitudes it said, it says, happy are the poor in spirit. The word is makaros. It's, it's not happy in the sense of happenstance. It's a much it's a much deeper word. It's the idea of, of deep contentment and wellness and wholeness and, and joy. I mean, blessed are the poor in spirit. You see, you can, have, you can be poor and still be blessed. You can be mourning, still be blessed. You can be, you can be suffering and persecuted and still be blessed, joyful. But it's a result. 
In the Beatitudes, the joy, the blessing comes as a byproduct of living as Christ wants us to live. And third thing, it's part of the fruit of the Spirit. It's one of the first fruits of the flow of the Spirit of God in us, Galatians 5, 22 and 23 say. So you have to consider that. It, it's, it's, the, it's the first fruit of the Spirit in us. Love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, temperance, or self-control. Hmm. And last, and thus... I would say it is a choice that we are given. It is a choice that we are given because of our life in Christ, because of the grace which we have received. Um, and the word grace is charis. The word joy in Greek is kara. They're from the same root. It's that when we are living out of grace, we can choose joy because joy, we are given that choice, if you will. So let's, let's close here. Here's, here's what I want to say to you just in closing. What we're going to discover in looking at 1 John is that some of us when we look at these vital signs, we're going to discover we're really not in the faith at all. We just kind of thought we were. Maybe we got religion, but we really didn't get relationship. And, and I, I'm going to hope and pray that we'll be honest as we go through the vital signs to look at each one of these and really consider and wrestle with Scripture and wrestle with what John says. You know, and then some of us are going to find out that, that, in fact, there are vital signs, but we're living an anemic life. Right? You know what I'm saying? Because if I check vital signs, physically if I check vital signs, they tell me, it, you know, if, if that temperature is spiking, right, then I better figure out what's going on. That may be the only indicator I get at that moment. It's just that, man, temperature's up. What's going on there? Right? I want to find out what's going on. Because if, if there's something not right, if there's something out of whack, you know, if there's an irregular heartbeat, if there's, you know, if there's, if, you know what I'm saying, if we can't breathe, there's some kind of spiritual pneumonia set in, then what we want to do is we want to figure out what's going on. Because if we're, some of us are going to discover that what John intends for us is not just for us to be confirmed and assured that we are alive in Christ, but he wants us to live full, in full joy, in full presence, in full life and abundance. One of Bob's favorite phrases, right? It's what he wants. So we may discover a spiritual anemia that's going on, and this will be an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to begin to do some work to begin to restore health and wholeness in our walk with Christ. So I hope you really will join us for the journey in 1 John. Let's pray.